Richard Pohl is a retired history teacher from BYU and is a history teacher from BYU, is now retired from Western Illinois University where he was a vice president. Uh, he received his BA from Texas Christian University and his PhD from the University of California at Berkeley. Um, he has edited Utah's History, which is a college text, and he's co-authored a biography of Hubie Brown. And he wrote a volume of essays called History and Faith. And within that volume was probably the essay for which he is best known, called What the Church Means to People Like Me, where he articulated the viewpoint of the Liahona or the Iron Rod believer, and many of you are familiar with that. Um, he's married and has three daughters, seven grandchildren. He lives in Provo. One of the delightful things about living in the Middle West was getting to know uh, the community of saints at Graceland uh, College and others in the RLDS Fellowship. And I've had the privilege of spending some informal sessions not only with Bill Russell, but with takes himself. And I have valued this uh, friendship. I've not had the same opportunity to get acquainted with Sister Stokes, but I'm looking forward to hearing what she has to say, even as I'm looking forward to seeing how this comes out. <laughs> For me, faith is what an earlier Paul said it is, the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. It transcends empirical knowledge, and because what humanity learns by reason and experience is both finite and fallible, it may even contradict such knowledge. Where a faith proposition and a knowledge proposition seem contradictory, I feel no compulsion to choose between them, unless it becomes necessary to act on one or the other. Many issues that strain relations between some good Latter-day Saints who are present tonight and some good Latter-day Saints who are not here do not require resolution. For pragmatic and doctrinal reasons, I believe in suspending judgment in such cases. I am, in short, a Latter-day Saint who believes that the gospel is true, but who has an imperfect and evolving understanding of what the gospel is. My testimony will, I suppose, be of most interest to people like me, people for whom neither dogmatic fundamentalism nor dogmatic humanism provides convincing answers to life's most basic questions. The pillars of my faith are two, two articles of faith defined by the prophet founder of my church, and an interpretive principle provided by the founding father, one of the founding fathers of my country. The first article of the Bill of Rights, <laughs> been taken in by uh, Bill's uh, uh, line of reading, I'm the first article of faith of our churches, <laughs> affirms we believe in God, the Eternal Father, and in His Son, Jesus Christ, and in the Holy Ghost. The ninth article of faith affirms we believe all that God has revealed, all that he does now reveal, and we believe that he will yet reveal many great and important things pertaining to the kingdom of God. James Madison cautioned, When the Almighty himself 
condescends to address mankind in their own language, his meaning, luminous as it must be, is rendered dim and doubtful by the cloudy medium through which it is communicated. Because I believe with Madison that everyone, including Paul and the other prophets, saw eternity or sees eternity through a glass darkly, prophetic infallibility, scriptural inerrancy, and unquestioning obedience are not elements in my faith. I believe in heavenly parents who care about me, but who will not, perhaps cannot, compel me to obey. I have hope in Christ, and I have drawn strength from the Comforter of whom he spoke. I see history in terms of human strivings for the, to discover divine realities and follow divine principles. Flashes of prophetic insight have elevated those efforts, and Jesus of Nazareth, in his life, death, and resurrection, uniquely embodied those realities. Joseph Smith, a prophet like Moses, Peter, and Alma, gave inspiration and momentum to the gospel dispensation in which, as I have written earlier, I find answers to enough important questions to live purposefully without answers to the rest. In the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, I have found ideas, opportunities, and challenges around which I have organized my life. Next to my family, my church is the most important component of that life. I am proud of its contributions to bettering the human condition and grateful for its contributions to my own. If I were in charge of the church, I would make some changes. Since I am not, I must be patient, but I need not be passive. As a historian, I know that changes have occurred, and the Ninth Article of Faith assures me that they will yet occur. As I reflect tonight upon the building and testing of my faith, I will offer a few suggestions. Pivotal in the evolution of my personal testimony was my family's move from Salt Lake City to Texas in 1929, when I was 10 years old. In consequence, I had no close Mormon friends except my younger brother and sister in the junior and senior high school and my five years at Texas Christian University. I found many non-smoking, non-drinking companions and in the process lost any categorical we, they, perception of the world that I might have brought with me from Utah. At 18, I was both superintendent of the Fort Worth Branch Sunday School and president of the TCU Student Christian Association. My two closest male friends were a Bible fundamentalist and a liberal Camelite, neither of whom was more persuaded by my testimony than I was by theirs. I decided then, and subsequent experience has not changed my mind, that people convert to Mormonism, they open themselves to the witness of the Spirit, when they are dissatisfied with some important aspect of their tangible or intangible condition, and they remain converted when they find in the Church a sufficient and enduring response to that need. I was confident that I would marry a bright young woman who would be already Mormon or ready to join either for the Gospel's sake or for mine. 
As it turned out, the lovely and intelligent Methodist whom I left behind in 1939 for a mission in Germany sent me a dear John. And the war that transferred me to the Canadian mission brought me together in 1943 as an Army Air Force instructor in Miami Beach with a lovely and intelligent Mormon from Utah. Seven weeks later, married in the Salt Lake Temple by the same Joseph Fielding Smith who had the United States in 1916. I'm reluctant to attribute a World War to attribute World War II to a providential design to bring Gene and me together. <laughs> but as we anticipate a golden anniversary in three months, we do think that finding each other was some kind of miracle. Texas Christian University had a profound influence on my life and faith. It made me a political liberal, a teacher, a historian, a football fan, and a lover of peace. As a senior, I was chosen student body president in an uncontested election because I was the only student council member still on speaking terms with all factions in the controversy that had led to the resignation of my predecessor. <laughs> Throughout my life, I have aspired to be a mediating, moderating, and motivating influence. At TCU, I learned Burke's warning against apathy. All that is necessary for the triumph of evil is for good people to do nothing. And Goethe's warning against zeal without knowledge. There is nothing so terrible as ignorance in action. I have quoted both in hundreds of history classes. A course in the New Testament introduced me to another epigram that has influenced my department in church classes both as teacher and student. The function of religion is to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. <laughs> if I were ever asked to speak in general conference, that would be my text. The primary activities to which I have devoted the last 50 years have all helped to shape and test my faith. First, my relations with Jean, our three daughters, their partners, and our seven grandchildren have been central to my life. Had I experienced consciousness raising earlier, I would probably have been a better husband and father. But Jean and I worked hard at building a traditional LDS Holman family and both the effort and the outcomes have brought us happiness. We have faith in the proposition, families are forever. And we recently watched a grandson sing the lead in Saturday's Warrior without letting theological questions mar our enjoyment of the event. <laughs> My relations with the church have included attending meetings regularly, going to the temple occasionally, and accepting callings ranging from branch president, bishop's counselor, and high council member to officer and teacher in every ward and stake organization for which I am gender qualified. <laughs> Currently, I teach the high priests, along with a sweet-spirited and knowledgeable retiree from the BYU religion faculty. 
The class members seemed to find his scripture-based answers and my scripture-based questions equally engaging. (laughs) If the hours devoted to teaching preparation, informal gospel conversations, and unofficial church-related gatherings are added to the hours in scheduled meetings, both my income and my time have been tithed. I begrudge neither offering. Except for the appointment as administrative vice president that took me to Western Illinois University after 22 years at BYU, my professional life has been closely linked to Mormonism. As a teacher and writer, I have observed how encountering history affects religious perspectives. It nudges some people toward disbelief and drives others into denial. But it provides more questions than answers. History is hard on myths and traditions that are contradicted by non-Hoffman-esque evidence, but it neither proves nor disproves the central faith propositions of the gospel. My own life with history, including the history of my own life, lead me to these observations about my church and my personal testimony. I belong to a church whose past and present leaders with a few exceptions, have been men of ability, integrity, and devotion. I occasionally differ with their collective decisions or think uncharitably about individuals among them, but I believe that they seek to serve God and that taken as a whole the fruits of their labors are good. As my brothers and sisters, they are entitled to my sympathy, support, and suggestions. I sustained 15 of my church leaders as prophets, although history tells me that leading any organized religion is primarily a priestly rather than a prophetic function. As voices crying in the wilderness, prophets like John the Baptist and Joseph Smith challenged the ecclesiastical status quo. Among recipients of each new dispensation of divine truth, however, there quickly arises concern for preserving and protecting what has been received. Among today's prophet high priests, there seems to be intense preoccupation with what may happen if unauthorized hands touch the Ark of the Covenant. There is reluctance to consider any unsolicited suggestion, even if it seems so reasonable and right. I pray that these understandable concerns do not produce insensitivity to changing needs among the saints and new possibilities. I believe that revelation may come through visions, dreams, and visitations as God wills, but my Madisonian skepticism rejects the notion that the mind of a prophet, any prophet, is a fax machine linked to a divine transmitter. The history and scriptures of the Restoration testify that almost every revelation is confirmatory. It responds to a proposed question, to a a proposed answer to a pressing question. And the timing and substance of both question and tentative answer are shaped by the character, experiences, and needs of the questioner. I believe parenthetically that that's true of the personal revelation which each of us has an entitlement to seek and to receive. I believe that this is true even if the petitioner for divine guidance is a prophet. 
I believe it is my right to help shape the context and content of future prophetic inquiries, even as I have tried to do in the past. And I pray for wisdom and patience in asserting that right. I see merit in the apostolic commitment to support decisions once collectively made. But a wonderful range of personal contacts has convinced me that those who wear the prophetic mantle do not all think alike, and that they do not always subscribe to the dictum, when the prophet speaks, the thinking has been done. For me, their humanness as individuals makes their collective accomplishment more remarkable. I sustain them in their difficult callings with the realization that, taken as a group, they are no less single-minded, devoted, and inspired than their predecessors. Let me illustrate this aspect of my testimony with three personal experiences. First, when BYU was recruiting students more than 40 years ago, John A. and Leah D. Widso rode to California with Jean and me in our Model A Ford. It was a great opportunity to get to know the man whose book, A Rational Theology, helped to shape my own beliefs, and the woman who expanded the word of wisdom into a complete health code. <coughs> Sensitive to this situation, Jean and I ordered whole wheat toast with our breakfast. <coughs> when the Widsos joined us, they ordered white. <laughs> In consequence of my publicly criticizing the book, Man, His Origin and Destiny, Jean and I had the remarkable opportunity to meet privately with President David O. McKay and immediately thereafter with President Joseph Fielding Smith and to hear them give flatly contradictory answers to the question, is the concept of evolution compatible with the gospel? We remain to this day thankful that the Ninth Article of Faith sheltered us from having to decide which of these two venerable prophets spoke inspired truth. <clears throat> On more than one occasion, I heard President Hubie Brown speak of the predicament of a counselor in the First Presidency who has responsibility without authority. Both he and Henry D. Moyle, his strong-minded predecessor as First Counselor to President McKay, were ultimately defeated by it. It is true that the Church has developed a backup system that ensures continuity in operations, but it is historically demonstrable that the internal dynamics of the apostolic councils change when the one person who is doctrinally authorized to speak for God to the whole Church is unable to lead effectively. I pray I hope and I believe that options for accomplishing for the Church what the 25th Amendment has achieved for our national government are under consideration among our prophet leaders and that an appropriate solution will in due course receive divine confirmation. I belong to a Church whose structure, programs, policies, and doctrinal interpretations are in constant flux, as the concept of continuing revelation requires that they be. My testimony has been strengthened by most of the changes that have occurred since I was required to hold my left hand behind my back when I passed the sacrament. 
And I expect to agree with most of the changes that will yet occur. On the premise that expressing them publicly puts them into the context for continuing revelation, I offer two prayerfully considered suggestions. First, the Sunday meeting schedule should be redesigned to address at least these three shortcomings of the present block plan. The strain on the attention and patience spans of the little children and those who teach them. The 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 difficulties inherent in trying to produce two short, safe, significant classes in quick succession, and the insufficiently met need for informal social interaction among ward members. Second, second, the woman question. Clearly a subject of profound concern among today's prophet leaders should be carried beyond the current praiseworthy focus on curbing abuse of women and children to a consideration of the full implications of gender equality in the kingdom of God. Changes requiring only policy modifications might include admitting women to the ritual blessing of babies, enhancing opportunities and recognition for teenage girls, encouraging female children to consider missions, and including active LDS women in decision-making as distinct from decision implementation at the ward and stake level. This is an issue no less fundamental than the plural marriage question that produced a revolutionary revelation a century ago and the racial problem whose revealed solution is revolutionizing the Church today. What does the future hold? Surely this is one of the great and important things on which we can anticipate further light and knowledge. It is exciting and faith-promoting to belong to a church in which many, many men and women of ability and commitment faced challenges as great as any earlier generation. While our prophet leaders confront the daunting task of separating traditions and customs from gospel universals, they remodel organizations, policies, programs, even priesthood quorums in ways that suggest both flexibility and inspiration. It seems to me clear that they are asking many of the right questions and are receiving many excellent answers. Most of their public and private counsel concept focuses on Christ's precepts for living. When things are said and done, when things that are said and done suggest the 39th verse of the 121st section of the Doctrine and Covenants, or the fable of the king's new clothes, we may still choose, aware of our own spiritual nakedness, to help create a better royal wardrobe rather than abandon the court and the kingdom. Reinforcing my resolve to carry on is the conviction that among our dedicated and prayerful prophet leaders there must be a growing awareness that the present bureaucratic approach to us Mormon mavericks 
is not only counterproductive, but morally questionable. As we anxiously discuss what to do about the brethren, we should derive encouragement, I think, from the clear signs that they are anxiously concerned over what to do. <laughs> my life and my study of history have made me optimistic. Things can be better than they are, and they will be, will be if we rise more resolutely and joyously to the faithful proposition I am a child of God. They can and will be when those who must prove all things and those who steadfastly hold fast that which is good realize they are defending two sides of the same divine formula. Because I believe that God has an interest in the outcome, I confidently anticipate that this church, my church, will continue to change repenting and improving in response to continuing revelation. In this expectation, I offer an adaptation of my closing remarks at last year's symposium. Encouraged by the, the Apostle Paul's observation, a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump, I aspire to live out my life as a Liahona Latter-day Saint whose questioning testimony perplexes some and comforts others of his brothers and sisters. I intend to frame my questions, make my suggestions, and bear my witness with charity, humility, and persistence. Thus, I hope to pr help produce a Mormon chorus in which almost all the singers hear the dissonant sounds of the alternate voices as polyphonic enrichment of the message of the gospel music. Thank you.